This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and uh, thank you all as well, those who are joining us on live stream this morning. Uh, Good morning to you all, and thank everybody uh, for your patience uh, and your faithful endurance as we uh, make our way through this really strange uh, time. Um, Your participation via live stream, uh, your continuing and giving financially up uh, to Zoom calls and and virtual meetings that are exhausting and taxing. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for continuing to to plow forward with us. Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. This is week number 97. Uh, We started this a long time ago. Uh, Week 97 in our journey and our study through Uh, the book of Luke, a series that we've entitled The Real Real Jesus. Uh, We've committed our our time uh, to this text, our preaching time to the the book of Luke, in order for us to gain a little bit more insight into who Jesus is, not uh, perhaps what the Simpsons and society and pop culture says that Jesus is, uh, but who Jesus is according to the book uh, that is holy, the book that is our authority, and the book that Uh, was written by him. I've heard it said in seminary, uh, you know, the red letter edition Bibles, nothing against those at all. Um, I like those. Uh, But a good understanding of the Bible is to understand that every word should be the color red because every word of the Bible was written by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So therefore, God himself, Jesus himself, said them and not just the ones that are in the red letter edition. It's a good way to think of the authority of scripture. Um, okay, so context for Luke 22 in our passage today, Jesus is in Jerusalem. Um, he's in the holy city, and these are his last few moments, okay, um, as a free man before he's arrested. All right, so this is leading up, like, he's hours away, uh, if not minutes away, uh, from being beaten. He's minutes away from being uh, arrested. Um, he is hours away from being killed on the cross. And he's just shared communion, uh, the very thing that we're going to be doing together uh, here in just a few moments. Uh, And those that are in your homes and living rooms, you'll be doing this uh, as well at the end of our sermon time. But he had just instituted the Lord's Supper for the very first time. And he he had just done that with his disciples. One of those disciples, Judas Iscariot, he served Judas communion. He just looked Judas in the eyes, knowing that he is tricked and knowing that he has been deceived by Satan. And then, uh, it's strange, but in the midst of the the Lord's Supper, uh, that holy time, uh, the very first communion, uh, there's an argument at the table about who's the greatest disciple. Um, And then Jesus teaches Peter and the other disciples that Satan desires to trick him too in in the same way that he has tricked Judas. And Peter swears on his life that he will never be tricked from following Jesus. And this all seems to have gone in one ear and out the other. But with all this in mind, we come to our passage today, starting in verse 39, Luke chapter 22 and verse 39. So when they come out of the upper room, uh, when they leave the upper room, he came out and went as was his custom, as was his ethos. 
as was his habit, his guiding belief, his core foundation. That's a significant term that I want to point out to you this morning. He came out and went, as was his custom, all right, here's his custom, to go to the Mount of Olives, to the base of the Mount of Olives, which is the Garden of Gethsemane, and his disciples followed him, which is, that's what disciples do, right? They follow their rabbi as, their, as his disciples followed him. They go along behind him. This was his custom, his ethos. Well, the Greeks understood this term to mean the central forces that influence your emotions, your behaviors, even your morals. This was his custom to remove himself, to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and pray. Okay? So in thinking of this, what is something like this for you? What, what is your custom? Where do you go? What do you run toward when you feel scattered and unsafe? Where do you hide? Where do you go? Where do you seek to take refuge? Now, remember, again, Jesus had just looked a dear friend in the eyes, a friend who was betraying him, turning on him, Judas. He had just washed that man's feet, Judas's feet. He had just served him communion. He just warned Peter and the others of their coming denial as the disciples in just a few moments are all going to scatter from him. He was fully aware of all that was about to happen to him. Jesus knew this. For weeks leading up to this, he would tell his disciples, hey, I've got to get to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be scourged, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to beat death. He's been saying this in the text for weeks now, for weeks. So he knew what was in store for him. He knew what was about to happen just few moments later, even on this evening. And so with all this pressure, with all this inner turmoil, with this heartache, this heaviness, this mental anguish, he had to get away to his sacred place. He had to get away to pray. This was his custom. So what do you do when you need to get away to get that soul rest, to get that mental clarity, to gain refreshment, to get focused, to gain a sound footing within for your life? We all have a custom. But have you thought of it this way? Think about it. If you were to study yourself, where do you go? You may not have identified it in this way, but we all have a custom. When you don't feel in control, when things aren't going your way, when you question whether you matter or not, or if anyone cares, where do you turn? Is this typically when you go on Amazon and order things so that they can show up in 36 hours at your doorstep or less? Is that when that plays out? Is it when you peruse through social media to see if you're known, to see if you're appreciated? Is this when you go towards porn? Is this, is this when you reach out to that person that you know will get in bed with you? Or is this when you get really angry with your family and you begin to demand perfection? That's easy for me. Is this when you get really quiet and distant from your close friends, hoping that they'll provide sympathy and give you more attention to address that insecurity, to address that pain and turmoil? Is this when you max out your credit cards or show up with a new tattoo or drink too much or eat too much? What's your custom? Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. That is really your custom. What your custom is, is your God. 
Well, the custom of Jesus is in these soul-wrenching sort of moments was to get away and pray. We need his custom to be our custom. We need his holy habit to become our holy habit. We need his godly reflex to become our godly reflex. We need that righteous rhythm of Christ in our own lives. This is where we're grounded, family. This is where we're rooted. This is where we're anchored. This is where we're made safe. This is where we experience comfort in the midst of chaos, is having a Christ-like custom of going to the Lord in prayer. This is, this is where we go when, when we need protection and shielding in the midst of soul war. This is where we can experience shelter from the storms that are raging. I encourage you, I ask you, please develop a redemptive rhythm, a Christ custom of prayer. Well, Jesus desired that his followers would have this custom, and he teaches them in the following verse. He says in verse 40, and when he came to the place, he said to them, do what I'm doing, Pray. And they dealt with it, as we're going to find out, in a way that their custom was to sleep. They felt this sorrow, and so they sleep. That was their custom. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't drift to this place. I, I want your custom. In this moment, when you're feeling this anguish, you know what just happened to Judas. You know what's laying before me. I've told it to you. I've laid it out for you. You're experiencing this heaviness, though not as much as Christ, but you're still experiencing it. He's like, pray. Don't drift to sleep. Pray. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not experience temptation, that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus has come there to pray. He came there to get some things off his chest, to get things out in the open. He came there to do some business with his good father, to receive comfort from his father. And here he is encouraging and teaching his disciples to do the same thing. Now take note here. The first step in in fighting temptation is to pray, not to intentionally or unintentionally put yourself in the place of temptation, to not even enter into the situation of temptation. Pray that you would not even be in the midst of a tempting situation. Pray this way. Pray to this end. Jesus tells us to pray this way. Pray to never enter into temptation. Pray to stay out of it. And if and when you find yourself in the middle of it, pray to get out of it. Verse 41, he withdrew from them about 50 yards, a stone's throw, depending on how good your arm is. And he knelt down and he dropped to his knees. And he prayed. And he said, Father, if you want, if you wish, if you're willing, If there's any way to do this other than the way that has been planned, remove this cup from me. Cause someone else to do this. Remove it from me and let someone else be responsible for this. That's powerful. I read this morning in uh, John 6, where Jesus even states to, to his purpose that he was born. He was born to die. He knows this, yet here in this moment, mental anguish and heaviness. If there's any way, take this from me. If there's any other way, let it be that way. And then the word 
nevertheless. Not my desire, not my will, not my wish, but yours, may that happen. Your will be done. God, Father, Abba, Daddy, if there's any other way whatsoever that you can deal with this sin problem, this sin situation, besides me drinking the cup, if there's any way, please do that. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He prays, remove this cup from me. This cup is a common metaphor used all throughout scripture, used for God's righteous wrath that is to be poured out on sinners in judgment for their sin. The wrath being the just required punishment that is deserved for sin, for sinning, for rebelling against God. And the coming hours, Jesus will drink this cup in the place of others. He's the only one that could do this for others. And this cup speaks to the doctrine of propitiation. This is where Jesus becomes our wrath sponge, where he's absorbing the wrath of God, the contents of the cup. He absorbs and he takes it upon himself in our place for us. And, I, and that it is a sponging type of word, an absorbing type of word, propitiation. And I like that because it goes well with the cup. It's as if it was poured out on Christ and he absorbed it all, but then it's like that sponge goes in and it sops up all that wrath so that Romans 8, 1 can be true. For now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, not even a drop. It has been absorbed by the driest of all sponges. So there's no more wrath for you to experience. This means instead of Jesus looking at you, instead of God the Father, the creator of all things, looking at you in disgust and finger pointing, instead of this being his posture, because of what Christ did in consuming this cup, he's always like that new mother or that new father, watching their child take their first few steps and stumbling and just being there as they fail terribly at walking. Yet there's no judgment, there's no condemnation, there's cheering, there's excitement as the stumble happens, as the fall, as they collapse, as they fail at doing things the way that they should be doing it. There's not that disgust, but there's that, that, that just genuine love and, and care and compassion that's constantly there. No condemnation, no shame, no finger pointing, no frustration towards us for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus Christ took the cup because he was our propitiation, our wrath sponge, our wrath absorber. This is good news. As Jesus considers all this, as this moment gets closer and closer of him consuming the cup, he's wrestling. He's wrestling within. He's toiling. He's experiencing this inner turmoil, this mental anguish. And as a way of dealing with this, he prays. And he prays the word, nevertheless. Nevertheless is a powerful word to use in prayer. It is one of my favorite words to use in prayer. Absolute probably my favorite word to pray because it acknowledges and embraces sound, humble theology. You see, it allows us to be honest. God, if there's any way that you can take this cup away, if there's any way that we can have a plan B, let's go that route. I don't want to do this in this way. If there's another way to do it, let's go there. 
You can be honest, as honest as Jesus, not wanting to save the world in the way that the Father had chosen to do so. But it also teaches us our place in the big picture. Nevertheless, your will be done. You're the sovereign one. You call the shots. You're the great controller. You are the good controller of all things, as Elizabeth Elliot would call God. I encourage you to pray this way. Learn to include nevertheless in your prayers. Jesus prayed this way. The psalmist prayed this. You read the psalms. It's full of nevertheless. Lord, you've abandoned me. David will cry out. Lord, you've made me a laughingstock to my enemies. I'm on the run. The pursuer's going to destroy me. Nevertheless, my hope is set on you. Nevertheless, let you put everything out there. Judgment-free zone in prayer. Just put everything out there. Stating your desire. Stating your wish. Being completely vulnerable and honest. If I could call my shots, it'd be this way. If, I could, if you could be my genie, it would look just like this. Nevertheless, I don't know things as you know things. I don't control things as you control things. Often I ask for a piece of bread when really I'm asking for a scorpion. I don't know it, and you're protecting me by not giving me what I'm asking for. So I, I submit to you. Nevertheless, now, in order for us to pray this way, in order for Jesus to pray this way, he had to have trusted the Father. He had to have submitted to the will of the Father. He had to trust that the Father knew what was best. He had to be content in the Father's plan. So, you see, we can't do this if we're proud. Our pride gets in the way of this. Our pride becomes a stumbling block to trusting the Lord in this way. I mean, Jesus even trusted the timing of all things to the Father. He submitted to the Father, even knowing that that very submission meant suffering and death. Abandonment from him to the point where he says, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you orphaned me? Why have you disowned me in this way? He knew that. He knew that. That was behind his nevertheless. He serves us so well here. He, he provides us with a model of what it looks like, of, of what to do when, when things are terrible, when we're experiencing grief and we're experiencing dread and we're experiencing torment, we're experiencing anguish. He's honest with God about his situation. He submits his desires to the will of the Father. And then he's honest with others as he shares in his grief with his disciples, asking them to pray along with him as well. That's a beautiful thing to do when you feel overwhelmed. Be honest with God. Submit to his will and his desires and share it with other Christian brothers and sisters who can pray with you. An example of this sort of praying is something I, I love. I keep this letter in the front of my Bible. Uh, Ten years ago this past February, my grandpa wrote this out for me. It's one of my favorite prayers. You've probably heard it if you've been here with us for any length of time. But he hand wrote this on uh, February 17, 2010. He's with Jesus now, so he knows this completely and fully, which is a beautiful thing. But this is a prayer that he would pray over me every time we got off the phone. I'd be in a hurry. Be like, I got to go, Papa. All right. And he'd just throw this in there. Couldn't stop him, right? I'm not going to hang up on Papa, right? Um, he said, Lord, please give me the faith to believe everything that you want me to believe. And give me faith to move any mountains that get in the way of this. But most of all, Lord, 
Give me faith to accept the things that happen that I just don't understand. And faith to still know that you love me and you always do what is best for me because you died for me. That's the sort of perspective of a nevertheless sort of prayer and humble submission to the Father as you pray. Well, as Jesus is praying in verse 43, there appeared to him an angel from heaven. It was visible to him and it strengthened him. He was able to regain strength. Let's pray for this too. Why not? Write it down. Pray for angelic encouragement, right? Why not? Who doesn't want that? Would you turn that down if it was offered to you? To be able to entertain and hang out and receive comfort from a heavenly angel? That's awesome. Pray for angelic and holy comfort to encourage you and strengthen you. Verse 44, and being in agony, extreme physical and mental suffering, distress and anguish, intense sorrow, and being in agony, he prayed more fervently, more eagerly, more earnestly, to the point where his sweat became sort of like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, I don't believe that Jesus actually, his sweat turned into blood as much as his sweat dripping from his face was the size of, of blood dripping from an open wound on the face, just pouring out. What agony, what stress, what turmoil, what pain. Friend, when you find yourself in this agony, do you do this? Do you pray all the more? Do you pray more earnestly? Or do we say, well, very well then, off with this prayer stuff. It's up to me, I guess. I'm going to worry about this by myself. I'm going to take care of this by myself. It's my problem. The movie The Gray with Liam Neeson, as he's, he and some companions are hunted by wild wolves. There's a powerful moment to the end of that movie, if you've seen it, really, really powerful, where he's a broken man at this point. Very proud, but he finds himself in a broken place. He's the only survivor of this group. And he's looking through the driver's license and wallets of all those that have been destroyed already by these wild pack of wolves. And in much vulnerability and fear, he cries out to God to do something. And you see his face just so humble. He says, do something, prove it, forget faith, earn it. Show me something real. I need it now, not later. I need it now. Show me and I'll believe you to the day I die. I swear I'm calling on you. I edited it just a little bit. And then he's crying through this. And then you see, it's great acting, you see this humble, vulnerable face become hardened. And his eyes, instead of being uh, droopy with humility, become tense and tight and proud. And he grits his teeth and he says, forget it. I'll do it myself. Now, I'll watch that about once a month, that clip, because it inspires me to know where many of, of you are from. The challenges that you face, and you feel this way. So I'll watch it as a reminder. This is reality for a lot of people. But this isn't the way that we're taught. We're not taught to forget faith and forget God and do it by ourselves. 
When things are out of control, this seems to be the way that many of us choose to go about things. When we do all the right things and we get all the wrong results, this seems to be our way forward. Just forget it. We try trusting God, but he seems too slow for us. So we take matters in our own hands. We dismiss faith and godly contentment. But this is not the way of the Christian. But I know what this feels like. We must develop enduring prayer, this earnest prayer. He prayed more earnestly, learning to pray through agony and not tapping out the moment we feel agony. When it lasts a little bit longer than we want it to, instead of tapping out, learning to pray more fervently, more intensely. This is the prayer way of Christ. Clarity of the reality of all that would take place is laying heavily on Jesus here. His time had come. Anxious to the point of death, crushed by grief are other accounts of this moment for Jesus in the Gospels. So much so that he collapses. His agony is so intense, he collapses to the earth. He's exhausted, he's burdened, he's weary, he's anxious, he's overwhelmed. Friend, if you've ever needed an example of Jesus being fully human, knowing full well what it means to be you, what it feels like to be you, look right here. And who better to talk to than somebody who's been there before? Who better to comfort you than someone who's been that path before? When I see Jesus here in the garden, toiling, being troubled, surrounded by heaviness, crushed by grief, my soul gets heavy. I feel that heaviness, but I also feel courage. I also feel a lightness as well. Because what this lets me do is, is understand more of what Hebrews 4.15 tells us, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. In other words, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, every regard, in every way has been tempted as we are without sin. If you're overwhelmed, know that Jesus knows what that feels like. Your anxiety is not a foreign concept to Jesus. Your fear, your frustration, it's not a foreign concept to Jesus. He doesn't have to use his imagination to feel what you're experiencing. He knows. And Romans 8.34 tells us that Jesus is right now, currently, before God, with God, interceding for you in prayer. The whole time, knowing not only what you're going through, but knowing what your worst nightmare is. Perhaps the nightmare that you haven't said to anybody. He knows it. And he's praying for you in the midst of that. Be encouraged for how Jesus constantly and always is aware of you, praying for you. Always. Verse 45, when he rose, when he stood from prayer. This is about an hour we learn from other gospel accounts because he goes to his disciples and says, well, you couldn't pray an hour with me? When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for grief and distress and sorrow. He said to them, why are you sleeping? I ask you to pray. Get up, rise, and let's pray. Pray again that you might not enter into temptation. I don't want you to be tricked. I don't want you to, to be trapped. And while he was saying these very words, there came a crowd, a mass of people, 
a multitude of people. And that man called Judas, one of the 12, and he was showing them the way. He was leading them. And he approached Jesus. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, to, to lovingly greet him. Now, what an example we have here of one whose custom, going back to how we started, whose custom was money. You remember right before all this, uh, Mary was uh, washing the feet of Jesus with her tears, her alabaster flask, and a very uh, expensive uh, spikenard uh, perfume. And Judas got upset. We're told in other gospel accounts that Judas got really, really angry because he felt like it was a money waste. And we're told, I believe it's John that tells us, that Judas would often help himself with money because he was the treasurer of the group of the disciples with Jesus. And so he would always like take from that privately without others knowing. So he thought, well, he sees this waste. He actually says that to Jesus. Why this waste? Why use perfume on you? What a waste. We could sell this. And he says, no, she's doing a good thing. Like she's preparing me for my burial. Judas leaves that moment. And that's when he goes to the Pharisees. When he was angry, frustrated, at anguish and at war and distressed within, seeing this financial waste, does he go to pray? I'm going to go find some money for this. This is ridiculous. What a waste. And he goes and he says, how much are you going to give me for Jesus? 30 pieces of silver. Price of a slave. Okay, deal. I'll show you where he is. Then he shows up right here. What an example we have here of that man whose custom was money, who rather than praying, rather than praying to be kept from temptation, being protected through temptation, he embraces temptation. He figures it out his way. He gets even with Jesus. He finds his money. Three years earlier, he drew near to Jesus. Judas, come and follow me and enjoy. Judas left everything to follow Jesus. Three years later, this drawing near to Jesus certainly is very, very different. And now this is a very intense scene. I don't know if you've watched a passion play at churches before. Um, I grew up participating in them and watching them, and it was always fun and a little weird. Um, you know, they had like maybe seven or eight soldiers sometimes dressed as Roman guards. That's nothing like this moment. This was a very intense scene. This was over the top. Through other gospel accounts, we know that there was a great crowd that was made up of the chief priests, representatives of the Pharisees, representatives of the scribes, the elders of the temple, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, soldiers and guards, both Jews and Greeks, Romans, soldiers. They all had lanterns and torches and swords and clubs and daggers and other weapons. This was a very intense moment. Jesus says back to Judas in verse 48, Judas, would you hand me over and reveal who I am with a kiss? You're going to treat me like family, but that's the, the bait and switch, isn't it? You're, you're, you're handing me over here. 
He knew what was to happen. He was ready. He's poised. He's not staggering. He's not retreating. But the disciples, on the other hand, those that were around him, they saw what would follow. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? You want us to attack? Which I love the ambition of Peter. Because we find out in other accounts it was Peter. And we find out here too. Peter's the one who pulls out the sword. Imagine Jesus plus 11. And this great crowd, and we know from the previous text that there's two swords in the possession of the disciples. The ambition of Peter and those disciples to think that they could throw out some mayhem on this crowd. <laughs> they had faith, it seems, a little, little ridiculous. Um, one of them, in John 18, we learn is Peter, struck the servant of the high priest, which is Malchus. Well, again, we find that in John 18. And it cut off his right ear. The front man, Malchus. Now be reminded, Peter, what did he do for a living? You remember? He was a fisherman. You don't have to be that accurate. Technically, you just have to hit the ocean, right? All right, not a big deal, right? He's not a swordsman. He's not a marksman. For Peter, aiming was simply just hitting the water. All this to say, I don't believe Peter was aiming for the man's ear. I think he was trying to cut off his head. This is an intense moment. Jesus says, no more of this, quit this. And one of the most powerful, just amazing moments, meek moments in the life of Christ. He picks up this ear from the ground and puts it back on the head of Malchus, the leader of this group. The group that's arresting him, the group that's going to kill him. And he heals him. That's power and grace. That's meekness and tenderness. That's poise and yet passion. As the disciples fight, Jesus tells them to trust. Don't fight. Trust me. If I wanted to be rescued, I'd be rescued by 72,000 angels that are ready and unwilling on call. They're looking down right now. They're ready. I don't need you to fight this way. Peter, I must be obedient to my father. I must fulfill prophecy. This has to happen. I've got to make good on all the covenants that God has made to his, to his people. And Peter, this is me fighting. This is me winning. In me being handed over, this is me winning. Trust me, Peter. Verse 52. Then Jesus said, to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple teaching, you didn't try laying your hands on me. You didn't try seizing me. You didn't try arresting me. But this is your hour, the power of darkness. You may have this hour, but I control the day. I've got the calendar. You have this hour. Many times when we experience an overwhelming onslaught of stress and anxiety and worry and panic, it's often made worse when, and even more intense when we see our circumstances as immovable, unchangeable, inevitable, and endless. We'd be wise and, and comforted even if we'd share this perspective of Jesus. This is your hour, the power of darkness. The power of darkness, this awful oppression, this intense evil. Yes, you're present, but you're not welcome. Yes, you're here. I'm overwhelmed. It's obvious, but you're not forever. You may have this moment, but there's something truer than you. You may affect me for an hour, but God controls the day. 
And I don't see Jesus as merely telling this to the soldiers or even telling this to the enemy. I see him telling this to himself. Sure, you're going to bruise my heel. Yes, you will have a moment. You'll have an hour, but I'm going to crush your head. I'm going to destroy you, and while I'm at it, I'm going to destroy all darkness, all disease, all death, and all sin. How will I do this? I'll willingly, joyfully drink the cup of God's foaming wrath, and I will drink it dry in the place of all those who believe me. Yeah, I live perfectly as them, and now as I'm handed over to you in this very moment, I'm going to suffer and be judged and die for them. In thinking that you're controlling me and controlling redemption's fate, you're signing your own death certificate. What you intend for the greatest evil, God is using for the greatest good. In thinking that you're outsmarting the mind of God, outmaneuvering the plan of God, outdoing the creativity of God, you're falling right into the very plan of God that's been in place before the foundation of the world. This is your hour, the power of darkness. Though he could have fought back, he doesn't. Though he could have been rescued, he's not rescued. He surrenders himself so that ultimately we could be rescued. It's not the sword which represents our way to rescue us. It's not the sword that we need. It's the cross that we need, which is God's tool that he's going to use to rescue us. And the obedience of Jesus to the Father's will, to the cross, and to the cup is Jesus fighting our greatest enemy through the obedience of Jesus Christ. He's not truly passive. Through the obedience of Jesus in being handed over, he is fighting. In being handed over and not fighting back with the disciples, he is defeating our enemies of sin and death. His surrender is his fight. His surrender is his fight. Your surrender is your fight. Your surrender to God's will in and through your suffering in the midst of your suffering, that is your fight. Trusting, giving up, throwing your hands up and surrender. That's not passive, not in the eyes of God. That's active, that is fighting. By fighting, we're trusting and praying and seeking to live obedient lives. That is active fighting. In closing, I want to read Psalm 16 goes like this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot, my life, my circumstances, my situation. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to separation from you, or let my Holy One, your Holy One see corruption. 
you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. My sweet, sweet friend, dear Christian, when you're overwhelmed and you don't know if you're going to make it, when you're anxious and you're afraid and you're confused, when you're lacking clarity and you don't have the focus that you want and you feel frustrated, when you feel like quitting and giving up all hope, know that Jesus understands what that feels like and know that you can make your custom calling upon him for comfort. His spirit is with you. His spirit is an integral part of who you are. And he's identified in scripture as being the great comforter. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 25, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. Weary Christian, lift your chin today. Lift up your soul to the Lord. Raise your hands in submission to God in humble praise. By faith, choosing to make time with Jesus your custom. Look not at the circumstances around you. Don't look at your past failures. And, and don't look back to your overly romanticized successes. Instead, look forward by faith through this dark night of the soul, as St. John of the Cross would put it. Look onward through this difficult season. Look onward by grace, maybe squinting the eyes of your soul to catch a perspective of the cross. This is what we need. This is what we must have. And let this be your custom. Well, as we prepare our hearts to receive communion this morning, let's consider the, the broken bread and, and the wine that we have that reminds us of the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. These elements that we're about to partake as you make ready at home presents us with a vivid reminder of what Jesus was considering as he became emotionally crushed by grief and anxiety in the garden falling on his face. You see, Jesus wasn't just simply afraid of dying. He knew that. He wasn't just afraid of suffering. He knew that. He could handle that. You see, he knew that he wasn't just going to die and physically experience pain, but that he would experience separation from God the Father, and he would experience consuming God's just wrath that we deserve for our sin. On the cross, Jesus was punished by God in our place. And God the Father rejected Jesus there on the cross, isolated himself from him. He, he abandoned him so that we would never be abandoned, so that we could be accepted, so that we could be loved. This was the terrifying reality that crushed Jesus, even emotionally there in the garden. And this is how much he loves you. So as we come to the table to receive communion this morning, let's remember God's love for us through the cross. And let's rejoice because Jesus did take the full cup of God's wrath we can receive the cup of Christ's blood that cleanses us from every sin and makes us acceptable, even glorious in God's sight. All this is our hope provided through Jesus Christ. So I want you to remember these things and focus on these things as we come to the Lord's table. During this time of reflection, I ask that you think and think deeply over these things. What is your custom? How do you pray? Could you pray these additional sorts of ways that we've learned this morning?
Consider the love of Christ. Consider the work that he's accomplished for you. Think. Think through these things. Thinking, thinking about these things is how one becomes a Christian. And when you think often on these things, you become a happier Christian. So take this time to dwell on these things, to repent, to confess, as you reflect on the good news of the gospel that you've heard. In a moment, those that are at home, you're going to be participating in this. And those that are here with us this morning, we've got these unique cups. Uh, the top there is a wafer uh, that's actually a part of the cup. So you take and you pull off the top, you get the wafer. So you have the wafer and the, the cup, and you can throw that away as you leave. But let me pray over this time of remembering God's work for us. And by the way, we encourage you to use hand sanitizer as you approach the table. Clean your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. <laughs> yeah, that's been said before. Okay. Father, thank you. Lord, for this time with family and friends. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Lord, I ask that you, Lord, give us much attention on the things that we've heard this morning that your spirit has revealed to us. Lord, may we be encouraged and humble and repentant before you, trusting you, perhaps like never before. Lord, help us as we engage in some pretty heavy soul work right now entrusting ourselves to your care and your spirit. Move in our hearts. Change our, our way of thinking. Change our understanding on things as we submit more and more to you. Father, add your special blessing to this time of remembering your incredible work for us, your wonderful work for us. In Jesus Christ's name, I pray. Amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.